All right, three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Gary Meese. He's the author of a number of books on the West Memphis Tree. Very thorough, first-person referenced information on this notorious case of the West Memphis Tree. The titles of the two-volume version are Blood on Black and Where the Monsters Go. They're both, uh, both available on Amazon. They have excellent reviews, but Gary's also been doing a very informative podcast. The title of the podcast is The Case Against, and it's Gary Meese, M-E-E-C-E, and he's currently on podcast number 49. He's uh, mostly focused on the West Memphis Three, going in detail and rebutting so many of these false narratives and false positions of uh, many of the West Memphis Three are innocent or Terry Dunnett types, but he's got some great titles on there. One is Rough Rebuttal, ID comedy of errors, rough stuff, and the rough deception. So we're going to go in detail about that. But uh, Gary, are you there? Yes, I am, William. Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who don't know your background or your familiarity with the West Memphis Three, West Memphis Three, can you talk a little bit about yourself and and your uh, first person knowledge of the case? Well, I I don't want to overstate it, but I I worked at the Memphis Commercial Appeal from uh, two thousand, I mean uh, nineteen eighty to two thousand eight. Uh, I didn't. I did not personally cover the case during that time. I'm not. I, I never try to give the suggestion that I did. And I also. And then from uh, 2010 to 2014, I worked at the West Memphis Evening Times. I was the managing editor there from almost all that time, and I did cover a number of matters there dealing with. Damien Eccles, uh, there was some litigation going on in 2013. So uh, I'm quite familiar with the area. And uh, needless to say, I, I really have a long background in journalism. I primarily consider myself to be uh, a print journalist, but I am doing some podcasting, that sort of thing. Gotcha. But the Commercial Appeal did some very detailed, uh, many, many, many articles, correct? On the West Memphis. <clears throat> That's correct. That's correct, William. And in fact, they they wrote the original book was written by three journalists from the Commercial Appeal. Not a, not me, but three guys: uh, Bart Sullivan, Mark Paraskia, and Guy Real. Uh, right. During the time when all this was going on, I was I was sitting at a desk that was literally probably ten feet away from the Metro desk. So I heard stuff going on all day long. Uh, I, I think Guy Real probably sat almost directly across from me. So I had quite a few conversations with him, as I recall, and uh, heard many conversations with other people about the West Memphis Three during that time. Uh, it was a big, big case. It's, it still is. Uh, we're going to be talking about Bob Ruff, and I was re-watching his for the third time, which is kind of a slog, honestly, to get through three times. But I was watching again today his uh, ID network shows, and he describes West Memphis as basically falling into this terrible state. He seems to blame it on this crime. I'm not sure West Memphis is actually in worse shape now than it was in 1993, but it's not because of the you know, they are known and they hate the idea that they're known for the West Memphis three and basically not known for anything else. 
But if they're in worse shape now than they were in 1993, it's arguable they're not. Right. It's not because of the West Memphis Three case. It's there's there are lots of other factors that would play into that. Do you recollect the title of the Parasquia book, the real book? Uh, blood, blood of Innocence. Blood of Innocence, right? And it's very it's almost never referenced by West Memphis Three supporters. Like I had to actually go through the footwork to find out that it actually existed. Yeah, uh, it's out of print. It has been for a long time. Uh, it was somewhat outdated almost as soon as it uh, appeared because it was really um, written on the fly. It was written while the case was going on, and it was put out very quickly. And so all the uh, all the stuff that's gone on since with the celebrities, the Paradise Lost movies, et cetera, et cetera, it simply doesn't touch on that. And a lot of things we now know because we have access to fuller records than they did then, they simply didn't have access to at the time. So it shows some of it's just an example of how journalism has changed with the difference in the Internet. Because I, I can tell you, I know those guys. Those are uh, Sullivan and uh, Pirsky in particular is a first-rate reporter, journalist, all the way around. Uh, good guys. Gotcha. So, I mean, they did a good job. I mean, they, there are... Um, some pretty, I remember it being kind of very lurid in some of the first person accounts, but it was also voted down on Amazon. I think there were a significant number of people who only give it one star as not being like a truthful version, something that happened to me as well on Amazon. But uh, <coughs> the, uh, you know, kind of getting back to the original, what what drew you to, to start the book? And can you talk about uh, your research? I take it you've obviously look through all of the Callahan materials, et cetera, right? Well, uh, I, uh, I was working in West Memphis and I was very, familiar, I mean, I was familiar with the case. Uh, I remember trying to work out all the family relations back in 1993 and being very challenged by all that. But, uh, I was working in, uh, West Memphis and I got a copy of the letter that, uh, Todd Moore, uh, Todd and Dana Moore, and uh, Terry Hobbs had written to the uh, the uh, Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, complaining about the potential nomination for uh, of Paradise Lost Three for this uh, uh, Oscar nomination. And I was reading through there, and I suddenly was hit very deeply by the idea that these poor people have really been abused by Hollywood and they didn't get any relief from Hollywood at that point. And, uh, and I, the more I looked at it, I said, you know, there's only been one side of this case that's been told it really deserves. And I, I tried to be as objective as possible, but I do take I do take the position that they're guilty and rightly so on based on the evidence and everything I'd been seeing up to that point was with the possible exception of the first paradise lost movie, which is somewhat ambiguous. You could draw maybe, I, I mean, I thought they were, I still thought they were guilty after seeing that movie, but everything that had been produced since gave the impression that they're just terribly, wrongfully convicted and this is a terrible miscarriage of justice and some other somebody else did it right. and this is and this is a continuing thing this is what uh, 
Ruff is doing now is he's uh, continuing this idea that uh, that oh this is a terrible miscarriage of justice. Surely somebody else did it, and we just have to get outraged enough, and we'll solve this problem. Right. Anyway, I was out. I was outraged enough at that time that I took it upon myself to begin doing some heavy duty research on it. And I was I was busy working at the time in a very taxing job and had uh, a lot of personal responsibilities and uh, so forth so beyond the job. So uh, it took me quite a while to get around to finishing up the book, but I started it very soon after that, very soon after reading that letter. Right. And that was, uh, and it, they, I don't think that it was the Paradise, it was the third one in the series, but it third, never... It was the third one, yes. Right. It didn't receive an award, but it was up against. And that was kind of one of the confusing things for me to look at the case, too, is what is this Hollywood involvement and what's going on with this kind of thing? And, you know, why are they blaming Byers and then Hobbs, two and three? So there's definitely some head scratching going on, at least for me. But... Uh, Maybe we can talk about how, like, I know that you and I had talked about Ruff. He has done this kind of series where he addressed it. Then he went and worked on some case in Texas. And now he's come back and he's called it the forgotten West Memphis Three, as if the the children are forgotten. Um, and now he's kind of readdressing this. And they did this show on Oxygen. And you've definitely been... Uh, been addressing that. Can you talk a, a little bit about what your kind of initial impressions were? Right. Well, you know, his conclusion, okay, this grew out of his podcast. And, and the conclusion of his podcast, among other things, was that he felt that the West, and he doubled down on this with Jim Clemente this weekend, that the, the West Memphis Three, all three of them had these alibis that were just so good that they couldn't possibly have committed the crime. And so therefore it was incumbent upon him to go out and seek the real killers. Well, none of those alibis hold up. They were all the ones that were presented in court were demolished. The ones that, that weren't presented in court don't hold up either. Right. And, and I could go into long detail about all that. Well, let's do that. Let's look at all three because Eccles said he was on the phone. Baldwin's attorney didn't proffer an alibi. And Miss Kelly said he was at a wrestling match. Can you address each one of those in, in turn? Well, Eccles said he, Eccles at trial made two alibis. One, he testified he was on the phone and his family testified he was on the phone he did not bring forward the witnesses that would have corroborated his testimony, Jennifer Bearden and Holly George and Heather Clyatt, who was Jason Baldwin's girlfriend, that he claimed he was talking to because uh, none of their statements to police backed up his story. They all said they weren't talking to him in this crucial time frame. Really, they didn't talk to him from about three, 4.30 or so in the afternoon until at least 9.20 at night, and possibly much later. And they tried to call him at home, and he wasn't at home, which means that, you know, he wasn't at home. His grandmother said, he's not at home now. Right. He, he had this other family visit that he supposedly went on, and it turns out that the timestamp that was used for that most prominently was the little girl said that, her boyfriend had a concert uh, within that same week, and it turns out it was two weeks later. Right. And so we cast doubt on that. The 
Uh, Miss Kelly trial, he had two alibis, attempted alibis. One was a series of police calls involving a slapping incident. Uh, this child, uh, he was supposedly at the scene of the police calls. The problem is, is the police who knew him, three different police officers testified, said he wasn't on the scene. So much for that alibi. Uh, his, his resting, he had a long list of people. He was uh, he really had over a dozen people he had testified for alibis. And he had a lot of people testifying in the wrestling match. The problem is, is when they brought forward, oh, yeah, we went May 5th, 1993, we went to Dias, Arkansas, to this old theater and did this wrestling match. The police went and checked with the owner of the wrestling uh, of the uh, theater, and it turns out that uh, receipt that they claimed for, uh, needed signed to use the theater for the night they were using the wrestling, uh, they were going to have the wrestling match was dated the week before and not the date that they were claiming. So it cast down on the wrestling match. Right. And then, yeah, sorry, please Jason continue. Ball, and then Jason Baldwin has claimed he ne didn't offer an alibi at trial. He since claimed he was talking on the phone to girls, the same girls that actually say they don't didn't talk to Jason that evening at all. It's the same three girls. And uh, he also claimed, uh, you know, he... He played wall. Uh, went to Walmart with Ken Watkins, who gave actually his friend, little friend Ken Watkins, who actually gave a statement to police that ran totally at variance with everybody else, including Jason Baldwin, and gave another statement to police that uh, Damian Eccles had actually confessed to him. And uh, and then passed and then failed to polygraph. It was a double negative polygraph. He denied that he that the story he was telling was true, which meant it was true. And so he would have been a great witness for Jason on the stand. Um, and otherwise, he really didn't have an alibi. He just makes a claim that he does. Well, he's actually after his conviction. I think since he's been out, he's made the claim that there was the Asian kid. Uh, right. I think his name was Dan Nam or whatever. Don Don Nam Don, uh, Don Nam right Don Nam was supposedly at the at, at the Walmart as well. Don Nam gave a statement to police and said he'd seen Damien Domini Tier, who was Damien Eccles' pregnant girlfriend at that time, and Jason Baldwin that afternoon. And then he promptly retracted that statement, said he was mistaken. It was a different day. Right. And that's in the court files. Like there's actually a written statement by Dan Nam saying he was wrong. So it's remarkable that, uh, that Baldwin is using that as an excuse when it's directly contradicted in writing in a police well, statement. Right. Well, what's, what's even more remarkable is Damien Eccles, uh, particularly mentioning these girls and they gave, they continue to give states and rule 37 hearings and so forth. Uh, I think Jennifer uh, Bearden's given at least three statements after the convictions. Uh, and she doesn't really change her story in substance. And it does not give Damien Eccles an alibi. So, so, so uh, Ruff is saying there's these ironclad alibis that are right. contradicted by the court records and statements in court. Right. That it were that were overturned, but he, it gets even worse than that. I mean, what other 
glaring problems are are in these rough uh, rough podcasts well, or or the shows. Many, I should say. many other there, there there are many other problems. Um, the big the big problem is is he's basing his whole investigation now on. He says he's not interested in getting new statements, new witnesses. He is banking everything on forcing the prosecuting attorney, Scott Ellington, to turn over evidence to be retested for DNA. The problem with this is, the problems are manifold with this. Number one, Bob Ruff has no standing to do that. Number two, the only people who might have standing to do it theoretically are the three uh, killers. And they signed uh, an agreement in uh, 2011 and with their Alfred plea that all, all these legal actions are over with. And uh, it could be argued that uh, they might actually uh, abrogate their uh, legal agreement for their release if they file additional legal actions on this. Right. So they're I, un still I, under probation. If they filed additional legal actions that go against the agreement they signed with the best attorneys possible, they'd all go back to jail. They could. could. I mean, it, 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 you know, and you don't know what's going to happen when you go to court. So it depends on what mood the court's in. That right. Particular day. Right. And, and so, but in theory, they could do that. The, the, the theory, the theory, there's, the theory, in theory, they could have done that any time in the last nine years. They haven't done it. The only one I could really see of potentially doing it, Eccles doesn't want to be bothered with it because he thinks he's got more important things to do. Miss Galley really just doesn't want to be bothered with any of it. Jason Baldwin would make sense as the only one who might be willing to do that. But he's had the opportunity to do that for the last nine years. The uh, Another big problem with this is this is redundant they they went through years and years of uh legal actions to, to enable them to get access to a list of items for new dna testing and, and well, all the way back really at the turn of the century and then went up to and they finally you know they they finally got approval for that and then it went through a long and many more a much longer process right and in 2011 they were coming up. We know they had basically nothing on a lot of the DNA as as of July, uh, because Marl Everett wrote a story about their attorneys meeting their attorney Patrick Bank, one of their attorneys Patrick Bank, meeting with D Dustin Daniel, who was the attorney general of the state of Arkansas, and Bank is telling Dustin McDaniel they're coming up empty, empty on the DNA. So that you know, their evidentiary hearing was going to be based on the chance of retrial was going to be based on potentially two major issues. One one would be new evidence, specifically DNA evidence, evidence, and the other would be uh, jury jury misconduct, but only for Eccles and, and Baldwin. Miskelly hmm. would not be able to claim any kind of relief for jury misconduct in Eccles and Baldwin's trial. So if there was no new DNA evidence or other new evidence, then he had no basis for going, seeking a new trial whatsoever. Right. So of course, so of course, 
Miskelly would have wanted to get it, take the Alfred plea. And that was and, right. And there was like the hearing was December, right? They were let out in August. Yes. So there was an yes. upcoming hearing. They had spent all this time. There was a a statute that was passed in in Arkansas that allowed for uh, opening of a trial if there was new incriminating or evidence that would tend to get somebody off the thing. And that's really what the the lever that they focused on in the appeals process to get right. up to that point in 2011. Right. Right, it was particularly DNA evidence. But the thing is, is they had the op- they had the opportunity granted to them to test new DNA evidence. They had the new DNA evidence tested, but guess what? Nobody knows what the results are except for like an an allusion to the results in a a, a Moral Everett story. The they they nobody knows what those results actually are the defendants have the the defendants the killers haven't released it to the public right. bob ruff skirts around the issue of even asking for what those results might be and you would think they might have you know if if they do nothing but just show well there's no there was no sign of the Westminster three uh in any of this dna evidence but we don't. We can't find anybody else either. It would show something, but so far we have seen nothing on that front for right. nine years now, and the court is not going to look kindly on that. Yeah, I would point. not think. Yeah, and they. I mean, but they say they're more than willing to have this PR approach that they found a care that is Terry Hobbs. They claim to have initially consistent, but they don't mind that that kind of bleeding over into we found Terry Hobbs here on the scene and then therefore that conclusively proves he did it, he did it which is really a stretch. Uh, it's a huge, it's a huge stretch yeah. and because it's mitochondrial DNA, it's only consistent with a small percent. It's as consistent with a small percentage of people in the world, but it's still millions of people. Any way you cut it. And even if you cut it down to just who was in West Memphis at the time, we're still talking about hundreds of people in West Memphis who would be a, a match for that mitochondrial DNA. And that's probably not even understating it with, you know, pop, with the population being, you know, that some common uh, ancestors, uh, you know, ancestry in certain areas, you know, um, not get, trying to get into cousin marrying in Arkansas or anything, but. It's just a fact that the gene pool gets smaller and smaller, these smaller backward areas. So there would be more matches rather than few as compared to, say, a general population over the United States at all, overall. So it doesn't prove that it's Terry Hobbs' hair. They also dragged poor David Jacoby, who was Terry Hobbs' alibi witness, into this, and he had a hair that was found at the scene with a similar sort of mitochondrial DNA match. And he was uh, really crucified in the West of Memphis movie, which was produced by one of the killers, Damien Eccles. Uh, he's one of the producers, obviously, obviously right. not the other one. And, uh, and, but, you know, not exactly an objective source. Right. And, and so the, the question becomes for, at this point, without, if, 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 for Bob Ruff to pull this to get his audience, I mean, he's you know he's got tears in his eyes. Yeah, he's, angry, he's 
make my home all but screaming, not at, not on the phone, but you know, away from the phone. He's all but screaming at, at Scott Ellington for not returning his phone calls and so forth. Well, number one, Scott Ellington just got elected judge. He takes office in January. We're having a corona. We're having a we're having a a coronavirus uh, shutdown right now. Everything's less than it usually is. And on top of that, <clears throat> two weeks ago, uh, Jonesboro, which is where Scott Ellington lives and where his offices are, uh, was hit by a devastating tornado. So oh, wow. Scott, Scott Ellington has bigger problems than some uh, boob podcaster from Podunkville who shows up there and demands to see evidence he's not entitled to see. Right, with really no credentials, he's just a self-described investigator. I think he was a fire investigator, self-claimed, but yeah, it's, it's very right. interesting. And that I saw him crying at the beginning, and it was really just an appeal to emotion. It wasn't sensible, and uh, it was, you know, I just knew that it was going to be the start of something grim, that this, that this is the way it started. Uh, well, no, it, a lot of it, a lot of it's very, I found it. I found it more humorous the first time I saw it because it was so bumbling and inept. But his, you know, he 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 has this whole thing about he's going to do what he calls the victimology. I, don't, I have nothing against with this in theory, uh, but the idea is you look at the behavior of the boys leading up to the killings, and this will give us some insight into why these boys are dead. Well, it's going to give very limited insight into that because everything that happened to get them into the woods at 6.30 at night that particular day had very little to do with what happened when they got to the woods. The, you know, this is not about who they talked to that afternoon or he makes a big deal. He's, he contradicts even what's on the record. But, you know, he brings up a, a new guy who says he was the last one to see them going into the woods. Well, who I mean, honestly, who cares who cares? They were seen going into the woods about 630. Who cares who was the last one to see them? He brings up uh, uh, the so-called fourth boy who supposedly went into the woods with him. That uh, He brings up this poor uh, George Taylor fellow who, who seemed very confused. And this went on for agonizing minute after minute with rough playing to the cameras, acting like he's a big investigator pushing this guy around and it turns out and the executive producer or whoever was on the scene with him basically saying you know that's enough <laughs> let's stop this and you know it and on and on and on right like he followed down that trail but it turns out that guy was either lying or he couldn't have been the fourth person so why did you right. include that in the show it's incredible right why right why put that in the show it's a big it was a, speaking of red herrings and he used that term it's a big red herring he is his idea of a red herring was Bojangles. I, uh, Mr. Bojangles, who supposedly was uh, at a, uh, a, was a, a, the name that's been given to this guy who w went into this fried chicken place that night, had blood on him, had mud, went to the ladies' restroom, acted deranged. And, you know, he's a mile, mile and a half or so from the crime scene. And it's an hour or so later well, you know, he went to a lot of trouble to prove, oh, yeah, if he ran down this muddy ditch in, the, in, in, in late evening or night, uh, yeah, he could have gotten there in time. Well, what's 
And then he concludes, but he couldn't have done it anyway. So we, he went to all this big demonstration to show Mr. Bojangles could show up at the restaurant just to go, well, make any difference because he didn't have anything to do with it anyway. I, t- I concur with his opinion on that, but, you know, it was all, all a big show. He makes a big show out of not being able to contact Jesse Miskelly Jr. All he had, apparently, all he had to do was just do some real, like, basic research and hunt him. You know, he was going to hunt him down a little bit, but it, it wasn't as if it was going to take Sherlock Holmes to figure that out. And, in fact, we see it wasn't really that hard. He just didn't put that much work into it. And then he puts in all these phone calls to Ellington, and he's get he's continually getting mad about Ellington not being on the phone to the point his producer says, you know, his producer's starting to have problems with the attitude. Right. You can, oh, so you know, it, but that's his personality. His personality is a, has a great deal to do with it rubs me the wrong way. It has a great deal to do with the show. But the fact is, is when I say there's a deception going on there, the deception is that. He thinks he's going to be able to do something about this case. I don't think he actually thinks that. I don't think he's that stupid. I think he wants to deceive his audience and get them outraged and up, all riled up and bother Scott Ellington. And he's hoping that maybe the state of Arkansas blink and actually hand over the evidence. But they're not going to do that. And then this case is going to go away again. Hey man, he calls his like listeners the Bob Ruff Army. So like these guys, he's like deliberately, like just like you said, he's deliberately kind of riling them up and trying to get them involved. And like it's a crowdsourced investigation, which is terrifying. I mean, and the, the I mean, if you go like his first case, which was Adnan Syed, like that was conclusively, uh, you know, put down on appeal. The, the highest court in Maryland basically said, hey, this is a guilty thing, and it just went away. Like, it was nothing that stood. Yeah. So these, this uh, won't be the first time. Apparently, he, apparently Ruff, uh, in that particular ep- season, apparently Ruff did what he does, which is he went out of his way to make uh, uh, High's boyfriend at the time, Don, I think the, the guy's name. I, I'm not, I mean, I don't, I know the case a little bit. But Don, uh, Ruff went out of the way to make him look, without specifically accusing him, make him look like he's the one who actually committed the crime. And it turned, and it was all based on some sort of time stamp at a, uh, a fo- some sort of photo shot. Yeah, it was like a glass place, right? It wasn't a glassware place. Right, yeah. right, right. I, no, I think it was a photo. It was a photo. Okay. Photo place. I can't remember the name. There was a big chain. I just can't remember right. the name right now. No, you're right. I don't follow him. I mean, I don't listen to his uh, podcast. I haven't listened to his podcast other than Wes Smith's three. But uh, so he has a history of doing this. He has a history of uh, really uh, – he talked, talked to Terry Hobbs. We know he talked to Terry Hobbs. It's supposed to be an off-the-record interview. And then he talks about what was said at the, af- at the off-the-record interview. Which just unethical, but yeah. he doesn't care. Yeah. Uh, he uh, brings in uh, a child of, of two of the parents who's having some sort of dispute with her parents about something has nothing to do with the West Memphis Three, except that they're related to the the victim, and has a big interview with her, and just basically smears people. He smears people, and because you know he gets. And then he attacks 
the police, the prosecutors, the judges, and he keeps saying how they're corrupt. He keeps saying there hasn't been a real investigation up to now, which is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Yeah, it was a police investigation. Police investigation. They had a really good. I don't. I mean, the guy been uh, cut all sorts of corners. Ron Lax was in there very early on for the defense as a private investigator. He did a lot of stuff. I don't think he was doing the right thing, but he was being an advocate for the for the defense very early on. And of course, after the uh, movies came out, they had this huge, huge amount of money available to them, and they've had all sorts of investigators, attorneys, experts available to them for years and years and years. And yet, all these questions persist because the questions ultimately aren't answerable by anything except they're guilty. So we're going to keep bringing this up again. We're going to bring this up again. Uh, Let's cast doubt on eyewitness statements. Let's cast doubt on this witness for that reason, that witness. Jesse Miskelly can confess 10 times. That's one way to count it. Or five times is another, like he's really officially got five different confessions, which means he goes to an appeals court. What's the appeals court going to do? They're going to look at this guy who's confessed five times and say, oh, yeah, you deserve another trial guy. Right. Well, you know, the thing is, they never mentioned this, Gary, is that it did go. The case went to the Supreme Court of Arkansas and they affirmed the lower court. So that's already happened. That that appeal, not on the DNA, but just a standard appeal, oh, was looked at by is, another court. Yes. Yeah. The the the, 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 lower court did turn, the lower court did turn them down on the DNA, but the the uh, Supreme Court did back them back, uh, approve that. But uh, the lower court, you know, of course it was appealed. It was a death penalty case. It went to, went to the Supreme Court. There, the Supreme Supreme Court didn't have any problem with it. That you know, there's been no, uh, you know, major ethical uh, uh, probes of the great point, excellent point. Yeah, are the are the police? The police made mistakes with this. I've yet to read an account of a major police investigation of a big, really, you know, crime that's really sort of way out of the out of the loop. You know, like a Manson murder or. Uh, Son of Sam, or whatever you want, something that's so far out, and this is one of those cases where the police didn't make major mistakes, but ultimately, because they kept doing their jobs, they honed in on who the perpetrator was. It just took them a while, right. and that's what happened here. It wasn't a matter of picking Damien Eccles out immediately because he was wearing a black T-shirt. Right, that's the old argument, the laser focus or the Damien Eccles, what do they call it, the zone or whatever. But it took him a month to actually arrest him, right? June, May 5th to June 3rd, right? May 5th to June 3rd. By June uh, 9th or 10th, they already had him pegged as a, as a really their best suspect uh, because, number one, he'd been seen – he had, we had eyewitnesses who'd seen him walking away from the scene of the crime. He gave some really, really bad answers, really suspicious answers to an FBI questions off an FBI checklist. <coughs> he kept changing his, um, 
his alibis. Even early on, he was changing his alibi times. He uh, failed a polygraph. He then he refused to. He threw up. He refused to continue talking to. Right. He uh, said, uh, "Let me." He told the cops, "Let me talk to my mom, and then I'll tell you everything." And then he talked to his mom and and clammed right. up. Right. So all, all, very early on, they had good reason to suspect him with a polygraph, an eyewitness sighting, and a, two disastrous interviews with police. They already had good reason to suspect him. They were waiting for more evidence. They continued looking at other people. There were dozens of people that were polygraphed. They had nothing to do with Damien Eccles. Uh, even uh, Marl Everett, even, I think it's in, you know, the ID network also did a horrible version of this. Maybe it was in the ID network where she talks about all the other people that were uh, looked at as potential suspects. Uh, she does get some things right. She doesn't get much right. She does. It's not that she doesn't get things right, but she deliberately leaves things out and slants things to make it look like the West Memphis Three couldn't possibly have committed these crimes. In which, you know, if you slant the evidence enough, yeah, they look innocent. It's the right. same old story with the Paradise Lost movies. Right. Um, what, just if we, something I'd like to touch on is, can you talk about uh, Bob Ruff's animal predation theories and why there's real problems there? Well, n number one, it's not based on, uh, it's not really based, it, the, the idea is that, that he's, he's claiming that all the, the wounds were caused except for some wounds to the head were caused by animals. Uh, there's been some medical experts for the defense who said basically the same thing. Uh, Warner Spitz claimed, uh, to, for his story to make any sense, Warner Spitz, who's a very well-known forensic, forensic pathologist, literally wrote a book on it. Uh, he claimed that uh, uh, his theory was that large dogs somehow dragged the bodies out of the ditch after death, slammed their heads against trees, and then put, somehow they ended up back in the water. That is the scenario that would have had it's, to have happened with Dr. Spitz. There's some other people who aren't quite that outrageous, but the idea is, is that turtles would have eaten the, uh, uh, would have caused the, the, these kind of wounds. Uh, Ruff is a lot, basing a lot of what he's doing on his experiment in which he dropped a couple of chicken carcasses in the middle of the day in warm weather down into the large drainage bayou called Tim Mount Bayou that ran by the kill site. He came back four hours later and the chicken car carcasses were eaten apparently by turtles. All well and good. The problem is, is the, <laughs> the large drainage ditch is not where the boys were left. They were left in a small it was a uh, it was a relatively small muddy ditch, and it was also a drainage ditch that emptied into that uh, larger ditch. And it was about two feet, two to three feet deep, deeper in some places than others. Uh, there may have been some turtles in there. I don't discount the idea that maybe some predation went on, but you know there were some real problems. The boys were smashed down into the mud. 
which means that uh, turtles would not have access. It was, the boys were placed in at night, which means that it was uh, turtles feed generally during the day. Uh, and uh, and when they drained the ditch, they found no turtles. When they, during the day, when they the turtles would all nearly been feeding, the the woods were full of people searching for the victims, which means even if the tur there were turtles there and they were active, they wouldn't stay active for very long because basically they run away. If they see, they're very, very uh, observant. And if they see a sign of a person, they're gone. <clears throat> and so, the, the, yeah, the turtles have suddenly grown into giant prehistoric beasts too. I think that was uh, the director of West of Memphis called them giant beasts. And there's real problems. I mean, we know, right. but the interesting thing is Spitz never disagreed with the findings of the, state forensic examiner i think it was peretti and there was somebody else sitting in with peretti it wasn't just oh, him oh he did he he did some of the others didn't but he did he said all three boys drowned the problem and this is a, a, a big problem with the animal predation theory uh two of the boys drowned <coughs> they were also beaten horribly um and Scrapped up and otherwise attacked. stabbed. Yeah, stabbed in the face. Stabbed. stabbed uh, uh, Stevie Branch was stabbed in the face. Um, Christopher Byers uh, died of multiple injuries, according to Peretti, and he apparently bled out. He had virtually no blood left in his body, so he didn't drown. And so it raises a question of how the injuries. If you believe in the animal predation, then you have to believe that the animals attacked him in such a way that he bled out before his body was placed in the water. It just simply makes no sense. Um, what does make sense is if they're in the water, they're bleeding, maybe a few small predators come up and, you know, you use your imagination on that, but there's blood in the water and attract some small predators. I, I don't think that's even that unlikely but uh as far as the major wounds uh it, it just doesn't it doesn't make any sense and it doesn't hold up with the evidence the adding further to this if you just simply look at the, how the wound the wounds they're not they don't look like i mean there's a lot of the wounds that, that are marks that are left from a knife that would be Exactly, exactly, it's probably the same knife, but if, if it's not the same knife, it was a very similar knife to the knife that was found behind Jason Baldwin's house, known as the Lake Knife, in November of 1993. And it's like heavily serrated, it's like a very strong right. serration. Right, it, it, and if you scrape, take the, put that across your skin, and you will have something that will look like uh, scratch marks. Uh, but you can see the difference between an animal scratch marks and scratch marks made by some mechanically made device. And if you look at the autopsy photos, for those who weren't really want to look at some really terrible, terrible photos, those are horrible. If you look at those, what you're seeing are wounds that are left by some sort of mechanically made uh, device and not by an animal. And I'm not an expert on that. I'm just saying what I'm, I'm just seeing what I see. Right, right. 
Gary, we are at 45 minutes. Uh, is there anything that you'd like to add or promote or uh, anything I missed? No, we, I mean, we could, I could go on about this for quite <laughs> right. a while, but we covered the big things, William. I, I do appreciate this. I appreciate your other work. Uh, I know you, you could, I, I saw your interview with Opperman the other day, Ed, the other day. He's a great host, by the way, but, uh, he, you know, uh, you could, talk, you could talk for the hour too. So <laughs> it's, it's, it, you know. But thanks for having me on. I do appreciate it. Well, I'm glad that you were made it. And I, I, people need to get your books. Blood on Black, Where the Monsters Go. Very reasonably priced on Amazon. Tons of information. And you've got 49 episodes on your podcast, The Case Against. So 49 and counting. Counting, right. So people go check those out. Again, it's Gary Meese, M-E-E-C-E. Thank you so much, Gary. Thank you, William. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.